Okay. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. All right, we're here, as you know, to study the book of Romans, and this is our eighth lesson out of ten, so there'll be two more after today. And um, today we're in Romans chapter 8, so if you have your Bible or your electronic device, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 describes a battle within for our heart and our mind and the Holy Spirit against all the forces of evil in the world and all the peer pressure in the world and everything we got to battle with, including our own flesh that has all the desires that the flesh has. So it, it appears like it's a lopsided battle. All the forces of evil, the flesh, the peer pressure, the whole thing against the Holy Spirit. But in fact, it's just kind of like Captain America today. Today's movie clip. I got that idea because I was reading 1 John 4, 4. Anybody remember what that says? Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. So it really is like that. The world does seem like it's everything's against the Christian and everybody's against you and We've got not only the world against us, but our own fleshly desires, but God has given us his spirit to overcome all of that. And if we'll just yield our life and give up our life to him and live a life of faith and dependence, then we can overcome everything that comes against us. So let me, uh, as far as chapter 8 being about the Holy Spirit, let me set that up by looking at some scriptures in, in the rest of the Bible. In the Old Testament, you have prophecies about what God's going to do in the New Covenant to give us His Holy Spirit to overcome everything in the world. So Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah says, in the future, I know Israel, you know, you, God has sent Jeremiah to tell Israel that they're totally into idolatry and every horrible, evil thing. And they did not keep the law. But Jeremiah says in the future, God's going to make a new covenant with his people. And he says, I will put my law within them. The old covenant had the external keeping of the law, but I'm going to give you an internal keeping of the law. And I'm going to put my law on your heart. And when Jesus was at the Last Supper, Luke 22, 20, he said to his disciples when they were doing the Last Supper, he said, eat this and drink this. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So he was saying, I'm fulfilling the prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26, Ezekiel says, the days in the future, God says, I will give you a new heart. A new heart, that's the difference. The old heart. The problem with Israel before is they didn't have a heart for the law. You know, they had the law, they were supposed to keep it, and they even acted like, said that they kept it, but the truth is they had no heart for it. They had no heart for it. And so Ezekiel says, but in the future God will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and lead you to walk in my statutes. That's going to be 
the difference. That's the deciding factor between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And at the Last Supper, Jesus was telling the disciples that he was leaving them, and they were all upset. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And he says, I'm turning the ministry over to you. I'm handing you the baton. And here's these 12 dummies that have got no idea what's going on. And they've been, they spent three years following Jesus around, not having any clue of the things he was teaching or what was going on or what was expected of them. And now Jesus says, I'm giving it all to you. God's going to reach the world through you here. And naturally, they're like baffled. And so Jesus began some teaching about how they were going to do it. He says, I will send, when I leave, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26. And the Holy Spirit will teach you everything you need, everything you need to know, all the empowerment. I'm going to give you my spirit. And then again in chapter 16, 8, at the end of that uh, Last Supper, he says, now look, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin. So as you go out and preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit will do the work of convicting people in their heart that it's true and that they need a Savior. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, and when he comes, he will guide you, the people that believe in him, that he sends out to represent him, the Holy Spirit will guide you and teach you and lead you and give you everything you need to do what God's given you to do. And then in Acts 1.8, uh, at the scene there where Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven, this is, this is where he really gives them a great version. There's several versions. Every author in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then in Acts has his own version of the Great Commission, Right? And you've heard Matthew 28 many times. But for my money, Acts 1-8 really is better because it includes, this is where Jesus tells them that they need to stay there and wait on the Spirit. He says, Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. At the time, there was 120 people there in the upper room and then at the ascension of Christ to heaven when he said that. So he's not just talking to the 12. He's talking to all those there that believed in him and that followed him. And, of course, us as well. That Acts 1-8 is directed at us as well. And then in the very next chapter, Acts 2, just as Jesus said, I'm sending my spirit. They heard the spirit come. They saw it. Now, why did they get to hear it and see it and we don't? Because it was brand new. They were the first ones. And so he, God wanted to make sure that it had an impact on them, that he wanted it to, and that they would be fully assured that this was the fulfillment of what Jesus had said. And so there could be no doubt of anybody there that this was that spirit that God said, that Jesus said he was going to give them. This is the event that they've been waiting for. And so the spirit comes upon them and indwells them and suddenly, these guys that were hiding in the upper room, what'd they do? Hey, let's go out. I'm feeling kind of bold, right? And so they go out into the street right there at the southern steps of the temple. If you've been there in Jerusalem, that big area, big open area, the southern steps where all the people came on the day of Pentecost to go up into the temple, it was kind of a staging area. And it also had all these baptismal pools. And so it was the perfect place for Peter to get up 
and preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave that up to God to speak through him. He stepped out by faith and let God speak through him, use him as a vehicle. And the people, just like Jesus predicted, the world would be convict, convicted. All those people there at the end of that sermon, were, it says they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what must we do? And he said, believe in Christ as your Savior and be baptized. And if you go there to the southern steps in Jerusalem, you'll see hundreds of these little baptismal pools that they were using for different reasons. But it was the perfect site for him to teach his sermon because as soon as all those people believed, 3,000 souls were saved. They immediately baptized them. And what's the important part of being baptized? That's not how you're saved. The baptismal pool was all those, those Jews, all those people publicly saying, I believe in Jesus. For everybody there to see and hear. Awesome scene. And so they, they went out from that point on in the book of Acts and boldly, boldly preached and did the work of the Lord from that point on. Uh, in Titus 3, Paul said, Titus 3, 6, he says, The Holy Spirit, when God poured out upon us the, His Holy Spirit, it was richly given through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, everybody that believed in Jesus received His Spirit and was empowered by it. And in the rest of the book of Acts, Wherever they go, whether they're in Jerusalem or in Samaria or up there in Caesarea, and then they, of course, Paul takes his journeys uh, up into Asia Minor and Greece, and guess what? Every time someone receives Christ, it says they were indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit came upon them. So from that point on, all people, all Christians, all people who believe in Christ were indwelt by God's Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And that includes us here. Everyone here, whether you know it or not, having believed in Jesus, you've been indwelt by His Spirit. And that is given to you for the same reasons that He gave it to the apostles and all the people at that time, which is to live the life now. Jesus' atoning work on the cross was the means and the basis for us being saved and forgiven our sins but now how are we going to live? Theologians call it sanctification, meaning a process of being set apart for the Lord. That's literally what that means. And the means or the way of life, the rule of life for the Christian is given that we are supposed to walk by the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit, pretty much interchangeable concepts. And, and the point that that makes is that as you walk, as you live your life actively, you're doing it by trusting in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God to, as it says, change your heart. That's the difference between the Old and the New Testament. Our hearts are in the process of being changed. You may call it spiritual growth. It doesn't matter. What God's doing something is internal in your heart and making you a new person in Christ. So it's the way of life. It's the rule of life. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, 
Walk, it's a command. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And he goes on to talk about the Spirit and the flesh, the Spirit of God and your flesh, by that your desires, are at war with one another. It's that battle within us for control of your life is what it is. So he is uh, commanding us to have a dependent lifestyle, yield your own agenda, your own life, and let God run it. Campus Crusade's got that great, wrote uh, Four Spiritual Laws, little uh, booklet, and it's got a diagram on it that has a, a throne, the throne of your life. And on one throne is E for ego. Are you going to live this way? These are your choices. E for ego to run your life, or, and there's a cross on the other throne, are you going to let Christ rule your life? So that's the, the way of life, the rule of life in the New Testament uh, for Christians. The way of sanctification, way of spiritual growth is walking in the Spirit, uh, being filled with the Spirit as letting the image of, of letting God control your life, being full up with Him and not full of myself. Now, what's the problem there? Paul, in, in chapter 7 last week, explained the problem. You remember what he said in chapter 7? Okay, now that I know what to do, what God expects of me, I'm going to go out and do it. I'm determined, and I've got strong willpower. Whatever I set out to do, I will do. And then Paul says, in practice, that didn't happen. As I went out to do that, I was still greedy. I was still hungry and thirsty and sexual desires and every other thing that I had before. And so there was a struggle. And by the end of that struggle, Paul yelled out in verse 27, 24, he said, wretched man that I am. I'm trying to do what's right. I know what's right. My mind wants to do it, but my body is doing something else. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death or separation? And then he yells out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. Christ has not only saved us from our sin, but he's also going to enable us to live now for him. And that's what chapter 8 is about. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned in chapter 8 20 times. 20 times in one chapter. So what do you think chapter 8 is about? Pretty clear. Pretty clear what chapter 8 is about. So uh, again, just a quick review. And as, we, as we've been going through Romans, uh, Romans 6 taught that all logic tells us that we should live holy lives. We know what Christ has done for us and, and we appreciate it. So naturally we should live for him. It doesn't make sense to live any other way. If we're Christians, if we're in Christ, that just by logic tells us that means I represent him. That means I follow his example. So that's what we should do, which is live holy lives. And as I said, Romans 7 is the problem. There's a problem there. What was that great quote in um, Apollo 13? You know, and everything, they had thought they had control over everything. And then all of a sudden, that all the stuff started smoking and everything. And they get on the radio and they go, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> really? Yeah, you're about a billion miles from Earth. 
<laughs> and your and your uh, spaceship doesn't work. We got a problem. And in chapter 7, uh, Paul details that, that problem, which is our flesh is still the same. It's still hungry and thirsty. It has sexual desires. It's still greedy. It wants more and more stuff. It's still got incredible pride. Pride, right? That's like that, that sin that, that uh, causes everything else. Pride goeth before the fall, you know? Pride is always there. Uh, some people have a lot more of it than others, but we've all got too much. And so Paul says, I, I don't know, you know, I'm just really frustrated with myself in chapter 7. And so that's when he calls out wretched man. So what's the answer Paul gives in chapter 8? It's, it's the perfect progression. And when, th when you talk about self-control and well, I don't know about these other guys, but I'm not a sinner and I can do this. You know, we say that someone has the patience of Job, for instance. Think of some of the Old Testament examples. I always heard about the patience of Job. Then when I studied Job's, I went, wait a minute. This guy lost his patience. <laughs> Have you read past chapter 1? There's 42 chapters. The guy was patient for one chapter. Are you kidding me? And this guy is our model. This is the most patient guy that ever lived. He made it through one chapter. That's the problem. On our own, doing it ourselves, we can't do it. And that's what Paul yells out in chapter 7. We have limited patience. We need the patience of Christ because there's a war going on within us between the flesh and the spirit. So now in chapter 8, the subject shifts from my willpower to God's enablement, what God's going to do to help me. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is mentioned 20 times. Uh, the emphasis shifts to the Christian life, living the life, the way of life, the rule of life, to sanctification, being set apart by God to represent Him. And it's a progressive thing that goes on. Don't expect to be perfect the first day, <laughs> you know. It's going to be a lifetime of experiencing this. And it may be three steps forward and two back, right? Some of the guys at my table, you know, they were going to abstain, but they couldn't take it. The flesh overwhelmed them, and they got the chocolate cake. <laughs> exactly. You can't do it on your own. And so just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted, God's going to provide. What we couldn't do, God has done. Now everything has, as we look at chapter 8, everything's got two sides, right? Everything. Each piece of paper has two sides. There are two sides to every argument. Somebody said, you know, when, when a husband and wife disagree, there is the husband's side, and then there's the right side. Ladies, you're supposed to give me an applause for that. <laughs> just like you look at the moon, and even in a full moon, you're just seeing half the moon. To every moon, there's a dark side of the moon. And to all human beings, you get to see something, you know. Typically, they're smiling or they're nice or whatever. 
But every person has a dark side. And it just takes the right impetus to provoke him or her, right? Everybody's got their point at which they melt down. And so in God's dealing with man, there are two sides to us as well. And many would have you believe that uh, this process of uh, walking in the Spirit, the process of being sanctified, is one-sided. They'll say, well, it's only God's side. God does everything. God does everything. We, we just let go and let God. We don't have to do anything. We just let God change us and we lay back. And then other people take the other side of the coin and they say, well, actually, we have a free will, so the whole thing is totally up to us. The fact is, biblically, neither of those are true. And you can see it in this passage in chapter 8 that God has provided the means by which we can do this, by which we can obey with him and live the life. But God has, so he's given us his spirit, but he's also made us responsible to show up. He's made us responsible to yield our life to him, to give up. You know, like I said, we all, we're all proud. We all want to run the show. We're, to a certain degree, we're all control freaks. We want to run things, make decisions. We want to promote ourselves. We've got to give that up. We've got to give up our agenda, our goals, and try to take on Christ's agenda and Christ's goals. That's walking in the Spirit. So there's two sides to it. God has provided but we got to show up and we got to let God, we got to yield ourselves to Him. Just like the saying goes that God makes the worms, but He does not throw them in the bird's nest. They got to go get them. Right? God makes the water, but forces no one to drink. God led Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, but He didn't force them to cross the river and take it. They had to be obedient. They had to yield to his will. If you remember initially, they didn't. Remember the 12 spies that went in? And 10, it's a great contrast, 10 came back and said, can't do it. All appearances are, it can't be done. Those guys in there are big. They outnumber us. They've got better weapons. And then there was the two guys, Joshua and Caleb, that said, well, wait a minute. Weren't you there with us when we were in Egypt and the 10 plagues against Egypt and the God parted the Red Sea and God's taking care of us all this time? Don't you remember how we did that? God did it. So God uh, gives you the power, gave them the power, but he didn't do it for them. We ha we are, we're responsible as well to give up our lives and take on his. So God's side is to provide, our side is to respond by faith. And with every divine initiative in the Bible, there must be a human response. And we must learn to respond to God. Unfortunately, there's usually a gap, a gap between what God has said that we're supposed to do and what we actually do. And we see in chapter 8, he begins with verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even though we're not perfect, and even though Paul has all that struggle and problem in chapter 7, he's saying, don't, you know, you start off in a great position. 
even though you've still got the flesh and you're still a sinner by nature, you start off in a great position which is completely forgiven by God. You're a citizen of heaven and you're going to be forgiven, but you still need to experience it during this life. But there's a gap between our position and our experience, as Paul shows in chapter 7. So what God wants us to do is to actually experience being in Christ, uh, following Him, walking in the Spirit. And so everything God has done for us is complete, but our part is appropriating it, responding to it. There must be a human response. Uh, And, you know, someone will say, well, what Jesus did, did did, did that make everybody forgiven? Because it says... There's therefore now no commendation for those who are in Christ. It differentiates who's not condemned any longer. And so obviously the inference here is that those who are not in Christ are still remain condemned because they've rejected their Savior. Okay? Uh, And so now to experience it, we need to walk in the Spirit. And to do that, you know, we need to do some things. Number one, we need to discover, we need to absolutely realize this is true. Most people haven't even gone that far. You know, if you say, you know, you have the Holy Spirit in you, they go, I do? I, don't, I didn't know that. I don't feel that. So you've got to discover that this is true. You've got to believe it and realize that you're not independent. You shouldn't be self-satisfied you should realize that there's a problem there and that God wants you to help you overcome it and let him do that. So you make a decision, a choice, that you're not going to live in the flesh any longer. It's no longer going to be about me and what my agenda and my goals and my pride and my Now it's going to be about Christ. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to seek him. and I'm going to let his spirit control my life and change me. So I seek the things of God. And I'm not going to crowd out the Holy Spirit with all the stuff in the world. Right? I want to be filled with the Spirit, but if I'm filled with something else, there's no room. So I need to empty myself of all that stuff that used to run my life, all the worldly activities and the pleasures and everything that I thought I needed, and let Christ come in and fill me and rule my life. So it's a, it's a crisis decision. Are you going to do it or are you going to continue to run your life on your own terms and your own agenda? It's not willpower. It's just a matter of letting God do it, of yielding, of saying I want to live for him, not for myself any longer. And you look at you know, all the other Old Testament guys and, and they were just like that too. Uh, you know, David... He thought he was in pretty good shape till he saw Bathsheba, right? <laughs> so don't think you have that willpower. There's something out there that'll bring you down, believe me. I don't know experientially. I don't I don't <laughs> not, not me, not me. And so we need to present, you know, uh, Romans 12, 1, back in uh, Romans 6, 13, and then again uh, in next week's, well, actually it's two weeks now lesson, uh, he says, present yourself. You know, you're seeking Christ. 
now. You want him to run your life. So present yourselves to him, to his activities, to his program, uh, and let him rule your life and control it and change you from the inside out. And then he goes on to say, and no longer present yourself to the stuff of the world. So it's kind of a reprogramming thing, right? You've got to reprogram yourself. And that's why here in chapter 8 he's going to talk about this idea of a mindset. Look at, look at it with me. Verse 1 through 4 is kind of a follow-up uh, from what he had said in chapter 7. 1 through 4, he says, there, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So positionally, you're starting out at a good place. You're completely forgiven. And the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. So, so God set you free to live freely apart from sin for what the law, and you won't be judged by the law is what he means. So for what the law could not do, it couldn't save you. Weak as it was through the flesh, our flesh couldn't keep it, so the law couldn't do it. God did, though. God accomplished what we couldn't do. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he had the flesh, and he died on the cross as an offering for sin. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in what way fulfilled? Number one, the penalty was paid, and number two, now he's going to empower us to actually have a heart for the law and actually want to keep it. If you're like me, when maybe when you became a Christian and some of your desires changed, you didn't like, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't want to go to church. Right? They had to, they had to drag me to church. Right? And, and uh, Bible study and all this, I didn't want to do any of that. I, when I came to Christ, I actually wanted to. My desires changed. What I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. Everything changed. And so it's fulfilled in that way. Uh, fulfilled in us who do not walk or live according to the flesh any longer, but now we live according to the Spirit. We let the Spirit of God control our lives. Where we go, what we do, decisions we make, how we act. Our attitudes. For those who are according to the flesh, those who still let the flesh run their life, what happens? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. By that he means separation from God. That puts you apart from God. If your mindset, even if you're saved, you, you proceed from position of being saved, but if you go forward still worldly, still being run by the flesh, I want this, I want that, i got to have this. If that's still you, then in that sense you're separated from God, from his program. Well, on the other hand, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Who doesn't want that? That's what we're all about. Everybody wants true spiritual life, and everybody wants peace. And that's the result of living in that spiritual mindset, letting the Spirit of God control your life. And here's the answer, verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Why does, why does God not have anything to do with you? Why are you separated or, or dead when you let the flesh run your life? Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. 
for it does not subject itself. In other words, you're still running your own show. I'm not going to submit to someone else's authority. I'm not going to subject myself to the Spirit. I'm, I know what's best for me. I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my ship. <laughs> By the way, the guy that wrote that, he's dead. <laughs> he's not the master of any fate. He's not the captain of any ship. Come on, man. People love that stuff, though. They love to sing the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Come on, you didn't do, you know, your way is a joke. It's like he says his, your way leads to what? Death. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh, let that run your life, they cannot please God. So this is a problem. This is why he says you're dead, you're separated from God, because you can't please God in the flesh. However, here's the good news. Verse 9, you are not in the flesh because you're in Christ. And you're going to let Christ run your life. So however, you're not in the flesh. That's not true of you. You are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's a negative way of saying, if you believed in Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of God. That's an absolute. You can take it to the bank. That's your discovery. That's what you know to be true. Always fall back on that. Don't let that go. It's the truth. You have the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, and He is, though the body is dead because of sin, so the, the, the idea of following the desires of the body and the flesh have separated you from God. Yet the Spirit of God makes you alive. The Spirit of, is alive because of righteousness, the righteousness of God that comes from being filled with the Spirit. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, or since He does, in our case, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead so what kind of power is that? It's the resurrection power. If, if God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to give your mortal bodies spiritual life. So no matter where you come from or how bad you've been, he can do this now. He can overcome all that and give you spiritual life, spiritual growth, maturity. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life now to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. It's a fact. It's an absolute truth. He can do this if you let Him. If you let Him. So you have this great contrast there in verse 5 through 8 of, of walking in the Spirit and you've got two choices of Living, you know, let God running your life or you running your own life. Those are your choices. And you get a great contrast there in verse 5 through 8 through the two choices. There are two active movements within us, each desiring control of your life. 
each seeking control. And it's a daily battle. It's a daily battle. Like I said earlier, what's the problem of being filled with the Spirit? I leak. It seems like just as I get everything filled up, it starts leaking out. I see something I want. Got to have. So you've got these two active movements within you all the time, your whole life, from now until God takes you home. That you've got a battle. This is a battle that we all got to fight for the rest of our life. And there's two mindsets. There's two ways of thinking. Spiritual or fleshly. And the results of one, the spiritual, is life and peace. And the results of the other is separation from God. Death. So the conflict there in verse 7 through 8 between our flesh with its sin nature versus the perfect and holy law of God that we want to keep, like Paul said in chapter 7, I want to do this. I want to follow Christ's example. And the bottom line is, verse 8, he says, if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. If you're in the spirit, you do please God. And God blesses it. And then verse 9 through 11 establishes that God has provided the power and the resources by giving us his spirit all true believers are indwelt by a spirit. We all have the capability, you might say, of doing this. But what's hard about it? Giving up control. That's really hard for a proud person to do, is to give up control. We've got a grip on stuff, a tight grip on all the material possessions, a tight grip, you know, on power that we might have over things or prestige or self-promotion or any number of things that fall under the category of us running our own life, being control freaks. To let us, to make us, to get us to let go, it's, it's difficult for a human being to do this. And like I say, it's gonna, sometimes you're going to be able to do it and sometimes you're not. So you've got these two active forces within us always fighting for control of your life. The conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And verse 9, 9 through 11 says, you got the power to do it because God's given you his spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you have the spirit. Know that that's true and proceed with that truth and turn your life over to him. It's our obligation. Look at verse 12 through 13. So then, brethren, so he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to the church. We are under obligation. If Christ is your Lord, you're, you're obligated. Not to the flesh, because that's not who you are. You're obligated to live according to the Spirit. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You don't want that. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And so verse 14 is kind of a summary statement. He brings it all together. He said, what do you want to be led by? What do you, who's your guide? 
we're not very good guides. You know, we get lost all the time, right? I don't want to be lost anymore. I want a really good guide, an all-powerful, omniscient God to guide me, to lead me, to teach me. You know, a great example, you know, you say, well, I've never experienced experienced this. Well, hold on. You know, the Bible says that people in the flesh are not able to even understand spiritual things. So if you've actually been studying the book of Romans, if you've been studying the Word of God in this Bible study or any other, if you were in church last Sunday or any Sunday and something, you know, was revealed to you, you got it, the light bulb came on, what happened? The Spirit of God within you illuminate. That's a great word, isn't it? Illuminate. And that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the truth to us that we wouldn't get any other way. The Spirit also gifts each one of us, gives us a gift to use that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had it if you didn't have Christ. The Spirit gifts you, and why? So that you can edify other people. It's for using to serve. The Spirit of God's going to enable you to serve others like you could never do before. So the Spirit of God illuminates. He convicts you of sin. The, the, I have found the people I know who are really spiritually mature are also the most sensitive to their own sin. And that's one of the ministries of the Spirit. He convicts you of your sin. So if you find yourself more sensitive to your own weaknesses and failures and sin than you used to be, that's the Spirit of God. You can know that He's there by experience. You've been learning in the Word of God. You've been convicted of sin. You, your desires have changed. There's been a change in your life from within. That's the Spirit of God. That's the ministry of the Spirit. And the more you let go of your life, yield it, as He says, and let Him run it, the more experience of that you'll have. If you go on a mission trip and you find yourself like totally lost, I don't know how I'm going to do this. They want me to go out and knock on doors and proclaim the gospel. I don't, I don't even know the gospel. Tell me what it is again. And then you go, what do you do? You, you don't have any idea what you're doing. So you step out in faith, right? And what, what do you find? Somehow you have the word. Somehow you're able to convey. Somehow you are able to do it. And you know that the spirit you've experienced, you've allowed God to work through you. So you, you've experienced it. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Changing you from within. Making you be conformed to the image of Christ. So in conclusion, let me just read what Paul says in, in uh, Ephesians Chapter 3, he's talking to the church in Ephesus about this very spiritual life with the Holy Spirit. And so in Ephesians 3, pick it up in verse 16, I'll read it for you. Paul says, I've been praying for you people. He's talking to you and me, talking to the church. What is Paul's prayer? I mean, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. This is a guy right here. 
And Paul prays this. Listen to this. He says, I've been praying that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. The spirit is inside you in the inner man and empowers you. He, He prays that they be strengthened to do something so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's your part in this? Faith. Faith. You step out in faith. You trust Him. And you show up. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of being in this relationship with God. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, you wouldn't know this any other way, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, filled with the Spirit. And now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pretty good prayer. And that pretty much explains this spiritual life that we're talking about. Walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit wants a ministry in your life and my life. And the question is, will you let him? Will you turn your life over to him? Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. Thank you, Lord, for not only sacrificing yourself on the cross so that we can be saved, but now, even now, while we're still alive, you're going to help us, you're going to empower us to live that Christ-controlled life so that we can say, as Paul did in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.